Welcome to Curveball Defied. On today's podcast, we have the pleasure of having Auntie Usahemala. Auntie has a degree in law and economics from the University of Helsinki and an MBA in finance from the Rothdam School of Management. At the beginning of his career, he worked as a manager in business development and an associate lawyer in a law firm. In today's podcast, we will learn how he was able to become a great leader and establish his position as co-founder and CEO of One Life Gives You Lemons a brand that merges skincare and cosmetics. Thank you so much, Auntie, for coming on to today's podcast. And we want to start off and talk a little bit more about your background and how that has shaped your current career. Happy to talk about that. Thanks, for first of all, for uh, including me on this podcast. It's always interesting to uh, share my story and hear other people's stories. I think this whole career path is a very interesting topic. Like, it, you can have a plan and maybe you succeed at the plan, but oftentimes... You have you don't really have perfect information when you try to when you you know start your career and go to school and you have an idea what you want to be what you want to do but you don't really know because there's so many things out there that come your way and then then you make decisions and those decisions are what you end up being and it's always fascinating I think to look at those core decisions that made made massive imp- impact on, on on your life and career so I've, I've had a few of those and happy to happy to share so yeah so I went to law school that was my first career mistake. I joke about it, but you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I when I went to school. So I thought that you know, getting a law degree. And by the way, I'm from Finland, so university is free. So it didn't cost me an arm and leg to get a law degree. So I was managed to get that for free. Actually, government actually pay you money to go to school. They they pay you money if you don't work. It's called social security, and they pay you uh, subsidies if you study. So it's called a student uh, student aid. So I thought I'll take full advantage of that and get the free degree. When I was still in law school. A friend of mine, and this I think goes back to the the networks and the value of your networks. One of my friends, who was uh, friends from high school, he started a tech company in digital health, and I was still in law school. And he called me up and he said, "I got funding for my startup, and I'd like you to go and start our Boston office, our U.S. office. I'm opening an office in Boston and and Prague and and Stockholm, and he wanted me to." go open the U.S. office. And I had a legal degree. I was outward oriented, spoken person, you know, he and, you know, had some ability to sell something, but by no means was I a professional salesperson at that point, had no understanding of technology. And we were selling software to pharmaceutical companies with my legal degree. So that's not really a winning equation. However, a little bit of determination and a little bit of a luck and all that I was able to get to the first clients in, in those two years in Boston. And the company, by the way, became very successful. It became a unicorn 17 years later. So it was sold for a billion dollars to, uh, to first to a private equity buyer and then to an uh, industrial buyer. So one of the few success stories. And it was really cool to be able to see the early innings of the startups that then became a unicorn. And you know what it takes from the founders, what it takes from everything you know how do you go and start a company that becomes a billion dollar company <laughs> really cool uh, blueprints to, to witness those then after that i was two years in boston basically th- about to become a dropout from law school with no college degree so i'm like i guess i have to go back to finland and finish my law school so i don't want to be a dropout i went back and finished my law degree and figured i guess might as well work at a law firm since i have this degree but very soon after i returned back to Finland from, from Boston, I started, I started noticing that I really want to go back to the U.S. I don't like the Finland. While it's a great country, it's a very small country and very, very, very few things happen there. So I figured 
I, I want to go back to back to the U.S., but with a national law degree, I'm stuck in Finland. So that's why I realized, well, I guess if I do an MBA, I, I might uh, get a job abroad. And so I get, got my MBA in Netherlands and uh, again, going back to the networks. So through the, some of the people that I met in Boston, one of them happened to be a professor in Harvard Business School, and he was setting up a late stage venture fund. So I called Randy up and said, hey, you know, uh, I'm getting out of an MBA, kind of need a job. And uh, he said, well, you know, we're, we had this idea of this private placement fund. We don't really have any money. We haven't raised any money. But, you know, we have, we have this strategy that we think might make some sense. And uh, I was like, well, you know, if it's good enough for Harvard professor, it's certainly good enough for me. So I, uh, I enthusiastically accept. I was interviewing in Lehman Brothers in London at the same time. And I thought big investment bank has been around for God knows how many years, stable, steady job. And I opt to go with these two crazy people from uh, New York to start a hedge fund, knowing that average life of a hedge fund is about 18 months because they come and go. But it felt right. And I liked the people. And I really just wanted to do it. I didn't see myself as being a cog in a small, you know, small wheel in a, a large machine. So that turned out very well. The fund became very successful. We had no money under management when I joined them. But then three and a half years later, we were managing nearly a billion dollars on a venture capital private equity strategy. So that was that was really, really good. And then uh, obviously we outlived Lehman Brothers, which was the irony of the decision that I don't know if you can conclude that follow your heart and it's right, but it just turned out right. Okay, so, so some amount of luck. I did that for about 10 years. And then um, I started to get an inch that I really want to want to go back to the entrepreneur side of the table instead of the financier side of the table. And on that sort of exploratory phase, I was looking at different things that I would want to do. I had a two-year sabbatical. My son was just born as a water house in Jersey and didn't do much for two years and then wanted to get back to starting something. And on that journey, then uh, I, I've dabbled into a couple of startups. I, I, have, uh, I founded a, a cybersecurity company with, with a known hacker that company went sideways, wasn't able to attract the capital that we would have needed. We raised uh, up to Series A, but that's that's where it sort of stumped. And then the, the CTO left, and I didn't know much about anything about cybersecurity. So without the CTO, I was unable to really continue with the company. So that 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 ended there. Then a few things came along, and then uh, I was looking into dermatology. I was looking into digital utility. And what, what consumers could do in, um, I, I realized that skin problems were, were, were actually a big problem for a lot of people and we're trying to look for solution. So on that exploration path of skincare digital, I met with my business partner, Nita, randomly. I mean, we were put together by people and then uh, we started having conversations and long and behold, soon we had a company together and now we're running that. And then, uh, you know, the sign of helping other companies raise capital as well, because that's something that's something I know very well. So that's the long, long story. That that was quite a journey that you took us all on and a great way to start this episode. Sounds like it's going to be a quite exciting one. I wanted to talk a little bit more about what you were talking about working for a startup and in Boston and seeing the great success of your friend that you had and then going back to law school, how was that excitement level met? And how were you able to go back to normal life after living like the startup hustle? Well, it's interesting. So that it was by no means clear that that company was going to be successful. So 
in after the first two years, that was 2001 and 2002. So the bubble had just burst. So they were struggling to get funding and, uh, you know, company was teetering on the, on the verge of bankruptcy, to be honest. And it was all hinging on, do we get the sales or not? And there were a lot going on at the company. You know, they, they had just signed up a big pharmaceutical company. I think it was Pfizer and they had taken much more than they can, they, they could chew. And they were struggling with the delivery, the, you know, the global heads of farm, you know, the digital IT people from Pfizer were just coming down on the CEO and chastising him and just threatening him. And it, <laughs> it was definitely a time of like, in hindsight, it's all, it's all, all fun, but you know, it was certainly not a risk-free environment. And ironically, there were three founders in the company. One of the founders left a year after I left. He moved on to do other things. The CEO left four, two years after I left. So he was only with the company for two year, uh, four years all in. And then the third partner sat on the, uh, sat on the board until basically throughout, throughout the journey of the company. But essentially, the operating founding team was really only with the company three or four years. And nobody knew what was going to happen to the company. And the, had they not been able to raise the capital that they miraculously eventually were able to, they, they wouldn't be around. Oh, I should also add that the founders lost the equity in, in the, the cram down financing that followed. So they lost all the equity, but because they didn't perform that overpromised, and shockingly, it took more time and more capital than the founders anticipated. Happens every time, obviously. So the founders had lost the equity. Luckily, there was this provision in the financing agreements that allowed the, 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 the founders to claw back their equity in case there was a change of control on the investor side. And because the entire VC ecosystem was just, you know, carpet was pulled under, under everyone, the, the venture fund essentially went, not bankrupt, but, you know, there was a change of ownership and change of control at the VC fund, which triggered the founders' right to redeem their shares back. So they lost their share. They had no shares, essentially. And then they had to find ways to borrow money to buy the equity back and then hope that it comes into some. So, you know, it was, a, it was not a straight path. I don't think it ever is a straight path. Maybe it's sometimes a straight path. It, it, it yeah. sounds fancier than it is. It was a lot of stress and a lot of headache and was not clear to everyone that this is the billion dollar startup. Far from it. A lot of things had to line up afterwards for that to happen. Yeah. And through that experience, it sounds like you were learning a lot and definitely getting your hands dirtier than you initially thought you would. And after that experience, you decided to work in different industries, as you recently spoke. What made you want to jump around and try different industries? So having a legal background, that's not, that's not really an industry. It's just a skill set that, that, I, that I know. But it's not, it's not tied to specific industry. I was, I was helping and advising clients, typically in the tech sector. And then on the, when I was on the venture side, we didn't have a sector focus. So we invested in companies across industries. So I was able to learn and get a look at the several industries and get a sort of general sense of, sense of the market. And I think that's, that's really cool thing about consult, management consulting and, and in, in investing is that you really get to learn and see different industries, how they work, how they operate and understand them thoroughly and understand the business models. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a constant learning. Yeah, one thing that I think is interesting is that after graduating, you ended up getting experience with one of the 
firms that every single person wants to work for when they're going into the banking world, which is Goldman Sachs. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your experience there and ultimately whether or not it was worth the hype? I mean, it's a very professional organization. People, I mean, I think people were, people were very, very professional, very nice, very smart people. I mean, you know, but in the end of the day, it's like any company. Any company, I don't think there's any, anything magical about Goldman, but, you know, smart people, good people, and you know, nothing, nothing bad to say about the whole company. Yeah. Can't really talk about my project, what I was working there for that much. Yeah. And after you left Goldman, you realized that you kind of wanted to start your own thing and work more with your own products and interests that you are interested in. And currently you're involved with multiple female oriented companies. What made you want to create these companies and get involved with them? Well, like I said, the, uh, the impetus for lemons was that one of my friends actually had, he was this big burly guy from Jersey who had psoriasis. And and every time, you know, he would get these patches on his, you know, arm and he would just turn into a completely different person. He was like, very outward and outward spoken and you know extroverted person and then when he gets his patches he doesn't want to go out he wants to well he's he's emotionally changed to a completely different person i'm like jimmy you know what's why why can't you go out and have a beer and he's like well i had these shitty patches and i i don't i don't feel like going out and i'm like i started to understand that it's not it's more than a skin problem it really go you know messes up with your mind and and affects your mental health and, and your well-being so it, it's a big problem. And us men don't often realize the, the, the struggles that especially women where adult acne is more prevalent, what they have to go through and what pressures a society puts on women especially. And I started understanding the magnitude of the problem. And so Nita and I, had we, had we had founded a company called Cocoon, which was a data analytics company focused on the female sector, specifically the beauty industry. And we were collecting holistic contextual consumer purchase behavior data within the sort of beauty and skincare sector. And our original idea was to sell those insights to brands and retailers as a, as a SaaS product. We found out that, first of all, it took a lot more money than we anticipated to build a fully-fledged SaaS platform, but also the market wasn't really ready to pay for that, pay for those insights, although they knew they needed but they didn't have the specific budgets for that. And we thought it's going to take a few years for market to catch up. At the same time, we were seeing massively you know, interesting opportunities from the data ourselves, such as the insight based on which Lemon was founded on. So we realized that if you look at the color cosmetics and the skincare industry, so you have this you know, skincare side of the aisle, which takes care of the skin and then products that basically provide paint and color, but don't take care of your skin. And that's, that's sort of how the, how the beauty market is roughly divided. And we realized that there were no brands with a cohesive narrative on the color cosmetic side of the aisle that would have any promise for anyone with a skin problem. So the sort of, we realized that while skincare and cosmetics seem to be emerging as a mega trend, if you look at the skin disease and skin problems like acne, which is one of the most, it's the most prevalent uh, skin, 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 uh, chronic skin condition, that there are no brands catering to these women. And if you look at the numbers, you look at how many women, well, how big, is it a niche? Is it a small market, big market? Well, there are more adult women above 20, 20 to 50. There are more women in, uh, between 20 and 50 who have adult acne than there are 
women 20 to 50 that are Asian, Black, or Hispanic combined. So it, it's a massive, massive white space in the in the beauty market. And we're like, we could be selling these insights to L'Oreal and have them do a brand, which they might or might not do. And they might, who knows how they're going to execute on that. Or we could be crazy enough and take this opportunity ourselves and start building consumer products based on the consumer insights that we had learned from our audience. So how did we end up in Lemons? It was not clear from the day one that we would want to want to build a consumer good company. We were led into it by the consumer and the consumer data and consumers were telling us what they needed. And we, we decided to seize that opportunity. Yeah. What skills were you able to bring from your previous lives and careers to help you succeed as co-founder and currently CFO of Lemons? I think it's just general business understanding, understanding money and finances, understand how, what investors want and what investors need to see in order for a company to be attractive and fundable. So that being able to translate between the investors and, and the operating companies, one for sure. And then obviously understanding the, you know, all the, all the contracts that go along with investments and making sure that you come out as a founder unscratched from that. So that's, but I think most of it's like, we always talk with Nita that, you know, there's so many things that you don't know when you start a company. And if you knew all the things that you have to learn, nobody, no sane person would ever start a company because there's a massive number of things that you have to learn from scratch. And there's no school for that. You just have to like learn it on the go, unfortunately. So it's just when you start a company, it's, it's just constant problem solving. Anyone who tells that they know everything, they, they're lying. Nobody knows. And you got to figure out. So you have, you have problems that are figure outable, and then you have problems that, aren't figure outable. Most problems are figure outable. If you have sort of the basic building blocks of the company and the strategy and the product and you understand the consumer, you have those right, then everything else is figure outable. If you have a terrible product that nobody wants to buy, then that's not a figure outable. You have to re- refigure what, what you're selling. But if you have a good solid foundation, you have a product that is working and it's, it's, it's loved by the customers, you know, then rest is figure outable. Manufacturing, logistics, supply chain, marketing, all those are figure outable problems. And that's what, that's what found founder, being a founder is figuring things out as you go. Yeah. And one thing that's super important when you're starting a new company is product fit and product time. Yeah. So currently right now, the makeup industry, I think, is at the highest that it's ever been with the rise of social media and all the attention of social media influencers starting their own brands. How has that competition and the increase of market that there now is for makeup products affected your business? That's an interesting question. I think so the barrier to, to launch a brand, launch your own product is it's not very high. You can, you can go to contract manufacturing and tell them what you want and they'll produce anything you want. As a result, we've seen an explosion of different brands from different influencers. And I think the brands really need to, it, it's less about, well, product is important, but it's, it's not enough to have a product. You need to have a, you need to have a voice and you need to have a, you need to have your media to get the, get the message out there. So, so influencers who have a lot of following, they have the first shot at seeing, you know, here's my product, shoot it out there. But if the product doesn't really work and it, it's not great, it's going to be a blimp and then, then goner. And we've seen that a lot. A lot of them come and go. So it comes down to like, I think what makes a brand sustainable is you have to have a great product and it has to stand for something. I mean, it, it, it's, it's more than 
more than the chemistry, it sort of the emotional benefit is as, as important as the sort of physical benefit that you get. And, you know, brand needs to stand for certain things, needs to have certain values and needs to be authentic. And consumers are going to sniff through anything that's not authentic in the medium run. Maybe in the short run, you'll get away with it, but you're going to get caught at some point. So we've got to make sure that your brand comes from an authentic place. It's got a story to tell and it, it performs. And yeah. it's figure out The makeup industry is one of those industries where you need the customers to keep coming back. And retaining those customers is something that's quite difficult because there's so much competition going on. So you have to adjust the price as well as what people actually want. So your background with doing analytics definitely was able to help you uh, try to find uh, the perfect product fit for uh, lemons. And it seems like you guys are just absolutely killing it. And at some point in your career, you're working with two firms at the same exact time. And Mm -hmm. managing your time is one of those things that most people struggle with. You seem to be succeeding. What are your secrets with it? Oh, I'm not sure if I'm qualified to answer that. I'm not sure if I'm succeeding in that or not. I'm managing somehow. <laughs> I saw Cocoon and, and, and uh, Lemons were interlinked. So it's not really, yes, it was two companies, but it's it's large, same team. There's an overlap. So I don't think it's, it's not really two companies per se. So the, the customer, the, the churn and the uh, returning customer, that's also interesting. Like cosmetics, people are very, you know, they have this very little loyal, very little loyalty among the normal normal beauty customer. They try other women, you know, they forget other women. So what's great about our audience who have women who have or, and, and anyone else for that matter who have skin problems, once they then once they find a product that doesn't irritate their skin and does good for their skin, they are extremely loyal. I mean they 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 come back and they're actually afraid to try other products once they find the product that works for them. So also from that perspective, I love the, the dermatology space of uh, cosmetics. So loyal customers that are willing to pay more for a problem that we solve for them. Yeah, for sure. And I think that it's quite amazing that there are industries that are out there to help people and raise their self-awareness and kind of just make them feel better about themselves and happier. And I think right now with what's going on with mental health awareness and trying to make yourself feel better, cosmetics and makeup and that whole industry does help girls feel more confident about themselves and guys as well. How do you manage with mental health nowadays and how do you distress from work? Yoga. (laughs) I discovered yoga four years ago and uh, it's been a game changer for me. I think it physically you have to keep you have to keep physical health because once you start losing your physical health and starts getting all sorts of aches and pains, it's hard enough starting a company. And then you, you got to be in good shape to mentally be able to continue. And then uh, I think, you know, mental health and physical health are interlinked. Absolutely. And yoga sort of touches, it surely takes care of the physical side. And I think it also helps a little bit to uh, find that, you know, hour, two, three hours, you know, a week to just do nothing but something that's not business related and focus on something completely different and uh, relax. I think that that helps. It helped me. Yeah. I found from doing yoga that in the beginning of each class, you try to find the answer to a certain problem that you may be having in life. And throughout the whole yoga session, you just 
focus on that one issue. And if you could just focus so much that you're like, your mind is completely clear and you have no issue besides that one thing that you're focusing on. That's like the perfect peak. And I found that always when I do go into yoga and I'm trying to find a solution to an issue, I always somehow leave the studio with an answer to the question that I ultimately started the session with. And for that, I'm super grateful and it helped me relax. And one thing that I used to have an issue with was my work-life balance because I wouldn't be able to separate my work and my life because I would just bring it everywhere with me. And yoga has helped me with that. How are you able to separate your work and life balance? I'm not sure if there's a balance. (laughs) I work from home mostly. So in the beginning, it was difficult to, to work from home. I, uh, I felt there were too many distractions, but just then you, I guess I've learned to get into the mode. I don't really, I'm not sure if I'm the right person. I, I'm not great at it. I'm okay. I get by. Uh, I kind of, to be honest, I, I kind of missed the pre-COVID days where, you know, you had an office and you, I think there's definitely value in, in interacting with people and spending some time at the uh, coffee machine and, and the fridge and just having casual conversations with people. This part of me that misses that, but yeah. Yeah, I definitely relate to that because I work fully remote right now. And in the summers, I used to go into the office because I had more time. And I remember we got these new coffee machines and everybody at the office was just going to the coffee machines. And it was like kind of like that spot where people would hang out and talk. And it felt you were more excited to go to work. Working from home, you could kind of wake up later because you know that you're going to start at the same time as if you were to go to the office and you could also focus on your work, but that's only your work. Sometimes when you're working, you want to like relax a little bit by going to the coffee machine. When you're at home, you're still like cruising inside and going outside and putting on your shoes is one of those things that doesn't make your brain and mind think a little bit differently. Uh, One thing that yeah. yeah, I think it also forced people to be more organized for sure. And and obviously use all the tools that we now take as granted, you know, project management and Slack and communication, all, all that. And also, I don't think it was a super easy transition for me. I felt like I was little from, I'm an, I'm an old school in a way. I like to call people. I like to, I in, in, in especially in the invest, so investment world, yeah, you can email people, but he, there's, there's no, there's no substitute talking to a person and even more so talking to a person live, trying to taking you back to the, so on the investment time, you talk to people, basically your, your job is to decipher whether this person is uh, telling you the truth or exaggerating or bullshitting or trying to decipher what, you know, what that's, what that's, what they, what they're telling you. And I get a lot more signals when I meet a person live and, you know, interact with them and talk to them then over the, even over, over the video. So there's some, some things that don't translate very well over the video, but many things obviously do, but those sort of sensitive points where you're trying to decipher who this person is and what they really have and what they really don't. That's uh, meeting them. is a Yeah, required. for sure. And over COVID, it's one of the things that most people struggled with. And one thing about struggling is that it's normal for most people to make mistakes. It's how you will, come up out of them. Yeah. Uh, having a lot of experiences and working in different industries, I'm sure that your mistakes have been able to help you throughout the years. Can you talk a little bit about a mistake that you made in the past and how you were able to get out of it? 
mistakes, mistakes. I think the biggest mistakes that I've ever made have had to do with the very topic that I talked about, which is knowing to what extent you can trust a person that you do business with. Trust is a very expensive word and you can't you just can't trust people off the bat. You just cannot. You're going to get your ass handed over. But you have to trust to some extent because otherwise there's no collaboration. You have to, you have to do something, but you have to constantly keep in mind, you know, don't let your guard down and don't think that these people aren't out to get you if they have a chance. Oftentimes they do. It's, you know, it's not a, it's a business out there and it's not, it's not kumbaya all the time. So I think I've certainly made, and I I believe most people have, I think the biggest mistakes have been the, some decisions about what people I want to do business with. Some have had catastrophic consequences. Some have just cost me money. Some have cost me, yeah, I think that's about catastrophic to loss of money. That's the, that's the scale. So anything else, I think I, all the other decisions, I would say, yes, things could have turned out better had I made a different, but they're not really mistakes. They're just, who knows, you know? Yeah, for sure. And you can't live life wondering what if. And thank you so much for coming on to today's podcast. We really appreciated hearing your story and we'll put in the show notes for people that are interested in finding more about lemons. If you have something that you'd like to share with the audience, uh, now's your chance. Thank you again so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me and thanks everyone for, uh, for taking an interest in this podcast.